0: This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. For this fourth week in our series of five on our gardens as important habitat and we gardeners as important stewards of land and biodiversity, we check in on the state of things for another beloved creature of the Americas, the hummingbird which has co-evolved with the flora of the Americas for tens of millions of years. We're joined in this conversation by Dr. Susan Wethington, research scientist, program developer, and executive director of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network, a group charting the course of our many hummingbird species from Canada all the way down to Mexico. Dr. Wethington joins us today via Skype from her home in Arizona. Welcome, Susan.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Will you describe
0: for listeners exactly what the Hummingbird Network is and your role in it?
1: The Hummingbird Monitoring Network is a conservation nonprofit organization to address hummingbird conservation needs. It began with two of my colleagues, Dr. George West and Barbara Carlson, when we realized that hummingbirds were being missed in the conservation world for birds predominantly there was no population information about whether or not they were thriving whether or not they were declining and uh they're different enough that the work that was done on other bird groups just simply missed hummingbirds mm. So that was the beginning of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network, and because we started with monitoring first, um, that's how we chose our name, although we do practice conservation at a broader level. The monitoring program, as you can imagine, hummingbirds live across a large range of habitats, depending upon which species it'll be, dependent upon habitats, but that what's going on in one place like the gardens in your backyard or the gardens um, in your area may or may not reflect how the hummingbird species that you're interested in is surviving and thriving throughout the rest of its range. Hmm. As a result we wanted to work with other people in a coordinated manner so that uh, we could gather data that was comparable and begin to understand what are ha, what's happening to our hummingbird populations and to be able to identify some of the environmental stressors and some of the habitat issues that hummingbirds might encounter and as a result then identify how we might be able to mitigate these challenges through restoration efforts as far as the monitoring program Once every two weeks, we have a monitoring session, and it's a banding program. If you can imagine, the only way to tell individuals of hummingbirds is to be able to identify them from year to year. And banding is the best technique that we have at the moment to be able to do that. This time of year, it's absolutely exciting to work at some of our sites in Arizona because of all the returning hummingbird individuals mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that come back. We've documented that the fact that they live, or the longest lived hummingbirds that we've documented so far have been 11 years old.
0: Wow, wow, that's so fun.
1: It is fun. It is so much fun when they come back and you feel like an old friend's returning. Right, right. What that information tells us when a bird comes back from one year to the next, is that it survived. It's still living. And it's this type of data that allows us to estimate what's happening with their populations. Are their trends stable? Are they moving up? Are they declining? And even possibility of looking at different factors that might influence their survivorship.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of things I want to follow up on there. But the, the first one is... Can you give us an overview? First of all, defining some of our terms about hummingbirds, uh, you know, who they are in the animal kingdom and what they sort of represent in terms of species and numbers and and general ranges. Are we seeing declines? Are we seeing health issues? Are we, like, what are the kind of key words that you're focused on right now?
1: Well, as Many of your gardeners know hummingbirds are pollinators, and they're the premier avian pollinator in the Americas. And as you mentioned earlier in the introduction, they occur only in the Americas, but they occur from South America all the way up to Alaska. They are the second most diverse family, family of birds in the Americas, wow. with about 350 species. Their diversity is highest at the equator, and as you move north or south of the equator, diversity decreases. Mm -hmm. For example, in Ecuador, which is the size of the state of Colorado, there's well over 130, 140 species in that country. (laughs) But but in Colorado, there are two breeding species, the black-chinned and the broad-tailed hummingbird, and two migrating species that typically occur, and that is the Uh, calliope, and rufous hummingbirds. Hummingbirds, in addition to being pollinators, are voracious insectivores. Many people are under the impression that all hummingbirds eat is nectar, but they are dependent upon insects for their protein. Mm -hmm. Hummingbirds tend to uh, occur in almost all habitats, But the vast majority of these species are dependent upon the forests for at least one important life stage. Hummingbirds are, for the most part in the tropics, either sedentary or move up and down the mountains during the year, whereas most of the hummingbirds that we see in North America, particularly in the US and Canada, are migratory. And um, it's a very different dynamic for those of us in the temperate zone than for people living in the tropics. It's very difficult to follow an individual hummingbird. And as a result, until we started this network, there was very little information about what the population trends were doing for hummingbirds. And that's why we started the network, our Preliminary analysis suggests that uh, hummingbirds are doing okay in that the variability around there um, from one year to the next seems to average out to a neutral trend, neither increasing nor decreasing. Mm, okay. However, there are a couple of really big threats on the horizon as our environment changes. So there are
0: both resident, non-migrating hummingbirds in a variety of areas, specifically the further south you go in their general range. I know we have one that overwinters and lives here in um, sort of northern California throughout the year with the Anna's hummingbird. Mm-hmm. But so of the 350 species, about how many of those are migrating?
1: When we think of migration we typically think of latitudinal migrants. They fly south in winter and they return to the north in summer to breed. And that's what I call latitudinal migrants. Of The suite of species that occur in the United States, which, depending upon how you count, between 16 and 20 regularly occurring species, a good 10 of those species would be considered migratory. And I'm going to have to Think in my head how many, if that's really 10 or if it's 8, are latitudinal migrants. Mm-hmm. There's, um, here in, in Arizona where I live, we're fortunate because we also have a group of hummingbird species that are what I call range expansion species. And if you look in your bird book, you can see these are the species that are resident in Mexico And it's only the northern edge of their range where the populations are migratory. And their range is connected, whereas a latitudinal migrant, their wintering grounds are separate from their um, breeding grounds. Mm. And then we have the residents, which is uh, a uh, species of Owens, which occur in California. And this is one of our probably best-known resident hummingbird species in the U.S., Costas, we're actually working on a distribution paper of costas trying to figure out if they leave their desert home, which is where they spend most of their winter and most of their year during the hottest and driest time to higher elevations to get out of the heat. And that's one of the questions we're trying to answer with our data from the monitoring. Yeah.
0: The fact that they are insectivores uh, for their protein is easily observable if you spend any time watching them move from your your flowers off to the air and then they sort of go dance in the air and you wonder what they're doing and then you realize they're doing you the great favor of eating as many mosquitoes as they can. When you said they are very dependent on the forest for at least one stage of their life, I am guessing you are talking about nesting.
1: Yes, it could be. Um, They... It's, it's interesting. There's so much natural history that we don't know mm. about hummingbirds. And when I did an analysis with a high school student, actually, about what are the traits of the endangered, threatened and endangered hummingbirds, which is about 15% of the family are threatened and endangered, mm. a good two-thirds of those uh, species, the nest had not even been described. Wow. But it would be reasonable to think that nest that forests are a really key habitat for nesting for many nesting hummingbird species yeah obviously the Lucifer hummingbird and the costa hummingbird which are the hummingbird that you see most often in our desert regions in mm-hmm. the US mm-hmm. have learned to live in drier uh habitats and are not dependent upon forests. But about 80% of hummingbird species rely upon the forest. Yeah. Step us back a tiny bit, Susan, and tell us
0: a little bit about your history and some of the earliest influences that, you know, whether those are people or places or animals that led you to be a person that was um, attracted to this
1: field of study and this passion oh my! well it's a journey hmm. and when my first uh, my first career was in computer development, and so my first two degrees were in mathematics and as many of of us who find themselves in the tech field um, there's or at least there was for me a, a real need to be outdoors, and so most of my leisure activities were hiking and and just exploring the natural world. I started with my husband to volunteer at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. And that's probably where my interest in ecology and the biological world was best nurtured. And as I uh, continued, you know, work, living, you know, spending my free time outdoors, my mind just naturally went to asking questions, and it went to asking questions about flowers to begin with. But there was a time in my life when I decided that this career was not the career I wanted to end with, and mm-hmm. made a decision to return to school and uh, in ecology, and to start asking questions about the natural world. And trying to understand how we could live more harmoniously with the world. At that time, hummingbirds entered my life in a big way. A uh, rare hummingbird species, the violet crown, decided to make its winter territory my backyard. Mm. So that started the pathway to studying hummingbirds. And then when I realized how much effort it would take to be able to change careers. I talked with the ornithologist, Dr. Steve Russell, who was at the University of Arizona, if I could tag along and maybe define a satellite project to some of his research. And it just so happens he was researching hummingbirds. (laughs) And it didn't take long to get hooked. And from that point forward, I uh, have been focused on hummingbirds. My dissertation looked at how nectar availability influenced the foraging behavior of hummingbirds. And then when I graduated, as an older student, um, my husband and I had discovered where home was, and home does have a GPS coordinate for myself. Um, and it just so happens to be a uh, great habitat for hummingbirds and uh, hummingbird migration routes. <laughs> so I had to figure out what to do with this new uh skill, and it, when I looked and evaluated what was going on, there really was a major hole in bird conservation when it came to hummingbirds. They just simply are different enough from other land birds that they were being missed in all the good work that other bird o- organizations are doing, and that's how it happened.
0: Yeah. The the universe was pretty clear with you as to what you were supposed to be doing, it sounds like.
1: And it let me know steps at a time, but I do feel like I'm on the right path. Last week,
0: we heard about a migratory bird garden along the shores of Lake Michigan in Chicago, Illinois. And this week, we go in for a closer look at the ecology of a specific group of well-loved birds, perhaps especially beloved in our gardens. Those are the hummingbirds. With close to 350 species in the group, hummingbirds are among our smallest birds, but our largest, avian pollinators. These little birds, many of which migrate vast distances, need to drink more than their body weight in nectar every day and are voracious and effective insectivores. Having co-evolved with the native flora of the Americas, including with the vast diversity of salvias, penstemons, lobelias, agastaches, manzanias, honeysuckles, and more, they love nothing more than beautiful flowering natives in our gardens to help them on their way. We'll be back to our conversation with Dr. Susan Weddington of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network right after a break. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud here, the website for the Hummingbird Monitoring Network states that it investigates what hummingbirds need to survive to successfully reproduce and maintain thriving populations through monitoring, education and outreach, research, and habitat restoration and enhancement. They say, we envision a network of hummingbird conservation communities working together with reciprocity between people and hummingbirds. Did you catch that part in our conversation where Susan mentions trying to encourage gardeners to share with each other what plants the hummingbirds are using locally for floral nectar or even nesting materials or sites? She also mentions that they're reaching out to larger land managers, golf courses, farmers, etc. to try to link sites. When she was talking, I got this really clear vision that we as humans, who have single-handedly created habitat fragmentation and loss, could also be the agents of bridging it back together again. We can help very tangibly with reunification. I know that's not a new thought, it's not new to you, but it hit me in a way when she was speaking that I really clicked and thought, whoa, that is possible. And if anyone can do it, it's us. Now back to our conversation with Dr. Susan Weddington. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Susan Weddington, research scientist, program developer, and executive director of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network, an organization working in support of hummingbird ecology, a network she helped to found with two colleagues in 2002. Welcome you you touch on one of the threats when you talk about the topic of your your dissertation floral um nectar availability and the presence of an endangered or rare species nesting or making part of its life in your back garden there talk to us about the evolution maybe of the network as you got it going it became a 501c3 I think you founded it originally in 2002, and then you had your nonprofit status by 2004. And it it seems as though it has grown in its layers of what it's researching and how it's responding.
1: The monitoring program was co-founded by three of us. Yep with Dr. George West and Barbara Carlson. Mm -hmm. Dr. George West was a professor from University of Alaska but had retired in Arizona and Barbara Carlson was a UC Reserve, University of California, at Riverside Reserve Director. To get information that you need to really look at how hummingbirds are doing, it's important to have a coordinated program that share and data and and the data is collected in such a way that It can be used to make statements. As the network developed, the people just became interested. And there was one time, I think it was in 2004, 2005, where the migrating southbound Rufus coming through the Southern California and Arizona sites almost dropped to zero. Mm -hmm. Now, If you look at where rufous hummingbirds migrate, their main migration route is oval, and their southbound migration route goes through the Rocky Mountains. And so the Arizona and California sites aren't on the main migration path, but what we would see is a significant migration of particularly juveniles coming south. And it became really obvious that if we were to be able to understand was this drop in juveniles a a problem with the populations of rufus in general, or is it just a bad season for nesting, Uh, we needed to really engage more people across the range of rufus. Now, rufus, if you were to measure the bird's migration route by the number of body links that it flies the rufus has the longest migration route of any bird it overwinters in southern mexico southwestern mexico and it breeds as far north as alaska wow. and in british columbia north so it turns out that we uh, try to engage british columbia banders and we also realized that we needed to have some sites along the Rocky Mountain Flyway as well. So we actively went forward to uh, try to identify people who would be interested in joining the network or starting a site. And um, and that's how our British Columbia team came on board as well as our sites in southwestern Colorado. And then a few years later, the federal biologists in Southern Utah near Escalante wanted a project. They were starting to focus on pollinators because there was a lot of big reasons why the pollination interaction, animal pollination, um, is at the threat of our changing climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanted to work together to be able to identify. Um, what was going on with some of their pollinators, and that's where uh, a National Park Service, a Forest Service, and a BLM biologist joined the network. So not only did we have coordination among sites to look at hummingbird populations, we also started to have coordination between federal and managers. From here, uh, things have moved slowly. We uh, obviously When you look at the range maps of hummingbirds, all of our hummingbird species, except maybe the anise and and alans, are really dependent upon Mexico as a place where they migrate to and live for many months of the year. Um, So it became a real obvious um, need to reach out to Mexican hummingbird biologists we had a North American Ornithological Conference uh, back in, I think it was 2006, 2007. Uh, The conference was in Veracruz, Mexico. We were fortunate that a number of uh, Mexican biologists were there. And we just had a meeting and said, do hummingbirds need a conservation program? And do you want to work together? And as a result, We've started working with Mexican biologists on a different variety of projects. We've had one monitoring site south of Mexico City that is owned and operated by our colleagues in UNAM, which is the National University in Mexico. And um, and we have um, more and more activities with Mexican students for six, seven years. We ran an internship program for... Mexican graduate students and young professionals, which expanded to South America for a couple of years. And um, it's just one step at a time. And as um, people share the desire to address hummingbird conservation needs, we find more intersections on how to work together to address them.
0: Yeah. So you have been collecting data that crosses these national boundaries for a little over 10 years now. Can you give us an example of something that has come about as a result of all three of you working together, having this whole chain in place?
1: One of the opportunities that came our way was to work with really excellent scientists on a NASA grant asking how does climate change impact hummingbird diversity and it was a three-pronged approach in looking at um, hummingbird populations on the ground the hummingbird physiology and then adding on the climate change and the NASA's remote sensing data that allows us to Um, Ask questions about what sort of environmental factors are influencing hummingbird populations. Right when that started, it was something happened in Mexico that affected spring migration for particularly broad-tailed hummingbirds. And broad-tailed hummingbirds are the hummingbird species that live at the high mountaintops. If you're in the Rocky Mountains, you hear wing whistles throughout the mountains. You're listening to broad-tailed hummingbirds flying around. Okay, Um, but it turned out that in that year, I think it was 2010, 2011, there was a really hard freeze that went across southern Mexico and hit as far south as Jalisco, which is a state in Mexico that many hummingbird species overwinter in. Um. And it really affected all of northern Mexico in that um, they lost a lot of their food crop mm-hmm. for that winter due to that frost. But when spring occurred, two things happened in our monitoring sites that we saw. One, the broad-tailed hummingbirds were using our low and mid-elevation sites an order of magnitude more than than they ever had in previous years. I want to say an order of magnitude more. I'd say in these Arizona sites, which were in the paper, they had somewhere between 20 and 30 birds uh, coming through our sites. Whereas in this, next, this spring, after the really hard frost, there were something like 250 to 300 birds wow. through our sites. And so the question is, wow, can winter conditions influence the timing of migration? Can it influence the timing of molt? Because many of our latitudinal migrant timing bird species molt on their wintering grounds. Mm -hmm. And um, does it influence um, whether or not they're fat? And the result was is that whenever you have low resource years, which means not very many flowers on the wintering grounds, and it's really cold, which makes it more difficult for hummingbirds to maintain their body temperature so their physiologies' uh, needs are more challenged. Um, they'll leave their wintering grounds early and come north. And then at the same time, they'll delay their molt until they get to the north. Um, and it, that year, it was really amazing to see all these broad-tailed hummingbirds at our low, mid-elevation sites and some of them had not even started their winter mold. Now we're, we're questioning perhaps the condition of our hummingbird feathers when they return in spring. Could that be a really good, um, quick response to harsh environmental conditions on the wintering ground? And that's one, uh, another question that we're working to analyze, use our monitoring data and the environmental data to answer. Fun fact is that these migrating broad broadtails that come through Arizona we now have five long distance recaptures with Rocky Mountain National Park wow that's so fun <laughs> <laughs> sort of it's sort like so much fun to yeah catch a bird that is not your bird that has a band and to find out where it uh where it's been uh banded yeah yeah
0: and and they must be excited when they hear that it came through you, and you can say it's safe. It's down here. She's on her
1: way. <laughs> uh, yeah, um. yeah. Sir, so, you know those are icing on the cake because you you can imagine it's a rare event. But to have five individuals mm. that uh. have been captured in Arizona on migration and then back in Colorado, Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, for breeding is pretty exciting. Pretty exciting, yeah. Keep walking us
0: through some of the other threats that you are you are projecting are are on the horizon and that you are are most concerned about, Susan.
1: Some of the results of the NASA grant work looked at what environmental factors are influencing hummingbirds. The one of the results on physiology was temperature as um, ambient or the temperature that we feel in the environment uh, increases. And if it gets over to close to over 100 degrees, um, then it becomes a challenge for hummingbirds. And the experiment was done on broad-billed hummingbirds, which is a species that occurs in Arizona and is one of those range expansion species that most of its range is in Mexico. But when the outdoor temperature is less than 38 degrees C, which is around 100 degrees, um, the hummingbird's body temperature, as measured by an infrared camera, Tracks the ambient temperature, the outdoor temperature. Hmm. But as soon as it starts getting close to that 40 degrees C, hummingbirds, the broad hummingbirds, will um, change their behaviors, what we think, and stay in the shade to try to keep their body temperature lower. And this work has been published, and the lead scientist on this was Don Powers from George Fox University in Oregon. The um, other work that was being used, that we're using the monitoring data for, is to ask what environmental temperature, what environmental factor influences the survivorship of the different hummingbird species. And I'm working on a paper right now that uh, the environmental factor that has the largest negative impact on black-chinned hummingbirds. And black-chinned hummingbirds are the sister species to the ruby-throated hummingbirds that the eastern half of the United States live with. Mm -hmm. But uh, the environmental factor that affects black-chinned hummingbirds are the increasing mean maximum temperature. So on average, the higher the temperature goes, um, has a negative impact on black-chinned hummingbirds' ability to survive.
0: And is that because, so I'm I'm sort of trying to figure this through in my own head, is it because when it gets that hot and then they change their behavior and, you know, need to stay cool and go into the shade, they are less able to feed really well because most of their floral and nectar uh resources you know i mean i just think about california and colorado i mean most of the floral resources are in the full sun
1: correct yes and so the the challenge is for when the hummingbird does, is hovering or flying it can't dissipate the heat it's like us right. being out taking a, a a strenuous hike in the heat
0: mm-hmm.
1: that being able to um dissipate the heat is a challenge in that. So for hummingbirds at that high temperature, dissipating heat becomes a challenge. And then their ability to um, forage on nectar will be mitigated, we think, by having to spend some time in cooler microclimates. It's very important to make the distinction that Each hummingbird species is different. Yeah, okay. And that, for example, for rufous hummingbirds that nest in the high latitudes of British Columbia and Alaska, it looks like the cold, wet springs are the environmental conditions that have the most challenge for their survivorship. Uh-huh. Their survivorship goes down when it's colder and wetter. So it may be, and it may is a, an operative word here, the Rufus may actually benefit from climate change as temperatures increase. Uh. And we think for our North American species that the greatest threat, to their survival is the disruption of the pollination interaction. As I mentioned earlier, each hummingbird species is different. Well, each plant species is different. And that they will adjust to their changing environmental conditions differently. And there's one excellent study with postdocs in the lab of David Inouye. He's a retired professor out of University of Maryland, but uh, has worked for decades at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory in southwestern Colorado. What they documented was that in Colorado, the early blooming nectar plants for broad because it is a broad nesting site, are changing their time of blooming to be about a week earlier. But then they went down to Tucson, Arizona, to uh, Tumamac Hill, which is a place that has been studied botanically for over 100 years. And one of the key nectar plants for migrating hummingbirds from Mexico north is the Ocotillo. And they've looked at the uh, bloom times for the Ocotillo, which is a perennial plant, and it has not changed over the... 100 years of study at this one site. And so the question becomes, if in the southern part of a hummingbird's range, they don't have any immediate cue that bloom times are changing at the northern part of the range, will they be able to adapt to their migrate timing of their migration to have nectar resources when they return? Yeah. And that there's also, out uh, of the same lab, out of David Inouye's lab, the, another paper that looks at the timing of nectar plants um, blooming. It seems like instead of it being available throughout the season, that now there seem to be peaks of blooms and times where there are no flowers available. And we see that here in some of our work where we've been following uh, what plants are blooming um, across the season and it seems like in May and June uh, there's beginning to be a larger gap without flowers. Because the changing environmental conditions are occurring the plants are responding to blooming when they can and it may or may not be when their primary pollinator is around And and this is where we think gardeners have a very very important role to play. Great! That's what we want to hear Susan.
0: In our fourth of five episodes focusing on the important role we and our gardens can play in supporting biodiversity, we're speaking this week with Dr. Susan Weddington, co-founder of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network, a network of scientists collecting information and data about hummingbirds across their ranges from Mexico, across the U.S., and up into Canada. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Hey, I am a big fan of public radio. I love the voices. I love the work. I love the feeling I get of being part of a group of smart, caring people trying to make a difference. If it weren't for my own public radio station, North State Public Radio, I wouldn't be here talking to you now. So wherever you're listening from, if you haven't loved on your public radio station recently, I hope you do. It's one of those resources that make my community better, make our communities more habitable for us all. Speaking of habitat, how are you liking the habitat series? I'd really love your feedback on this. I like putting series together. Linking some of the people I speak with seems to amplify and diversify the message. Is this true for you? And I've learned some great things. Just in this conversation with Susan alone, I learned that hummingbirds molt. I didn't know that, did you? I have seen a hummingbird nest, an Anna's nest, a few times, but given how prevalent they are here year round, that I've only seen one a handful of times lets me know how careful and smart they are in their nest protection. To learn in this conversation also that among the threatened hummingbird species, several had never had their nesting materials locations or behaviors described made my heart sink which brings me back to the power of this series for me at any rate the incredible power and agency that I see in our gardens that makes my heart lift the more we know the more we can do I like that correlation it's not always true in life but it is true of our gardening the more all of us know If you love Cultivating Place, please share it with others. Tell your friends, your book group, your running club, your carpool, the busy spring gardeners at the nursery. Word of mouth is the best and most complimentary way for this podcast to grow. Now back to our conversation with Susan Weddington of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Susan Weddington, scientist, program developer, and executive director of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network, an organization working in support of hummingbird ecology across the Americas. What what recommendations do you have for home gardeners about what they should be doing and, and striving for in their home gardens?
1: one of the predictions of climate change from northwest mexico all the way through the west is that droughts are more severe and long lasting and so not only do you have different environmental conditions which may change the time of blooming you also may be under the conditions where there's not enough water for the plants to bloom our gardens may be the refugia for our native nectar plants. These are the places where plants can still grow during these harsh conditions so that when the harsh conditions change, there's an opportunity for them to reestablish themselves across the landscape. If a gardener were to ask me, what can I do for hummingbirds? Then I would say plant flowers and plant native flowers. Define your garden in a way that you have native nectar plants blooming throughout the season. And that I would encourage people to talk to their nurseries, talk to their botanical gardens, talk to uh, their native plant societies, to their master gardening uh, resources to say, what are the key nectar plants that occur in our area And how can we plant enough of them that would sustain our hummingbird populations? Yeah. You mentioned gardening on the website and we were really fortunate that Marcy Scott, an owner of a native plant nursery in Southwestern New Mexico was willing to share her knowledge of hummingbird plants of the Southwest and Her book had just recently been published when she did her video for our our website that talks about how you might choose to plant um, hummingbird plants and some of the other things that you might think about in the structure of your garden that might encourage hummingbirds to nest in your gardens as well. It's a great book for identifying a lot of plants that can be grown in the southwest but it's likely that wherever your gardeners live, they have resources that identify hummingbird plants that would grow in their gardens. Yeah. And if there are not resources, one of the things that we're trying to develop is more community-based conservation One of the ideas that we've been doing with a couple of communities is to try to work with community members to have them go out on their landscape and identify which plants hummingbirds are going to Mm. and start building a more robust list of plants that hummingbirds use for nectar. Gardens are key for surviving these drought conditions in the West. And now we're trying to think about how can we make this into a broader scale that reaches across landscapes. And so we're thinking about engaging golf courses, um, botanical gardens, larger areas of landscaping that could also provide the resources needed for pollinators. And as you can imagine, um, the more the pollination interaction is protected, so to speak, being a functioning process, ecological process, the more it helps maintain biodiversity, uh, maintain our food crops. Um, There's just a long list of reasons why animal pollination is really critical to keep functioning throughout our ecosystems. Mm -hmm. In the home
0: gardening information, what is the, the sort of stance of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network on hummingbird feeders?
1: Hummingbird feeders are a part of hummingbird ecology in the U.S. and Canada and in parts of Latin America. They in my opinion, are there for our enjoyment. Hummingbirds use them. They get a lot of energy from them. But if you maintain feeders, which I do, our home monitoring program is based upon, is feeder-based because it provides a great tool for Um, easy way to capture. And also because hummingbirds have great site fidelity to their foraging places, um, it gives us the data we need to look at their populations. But I like to think of feeders as something that helps people enjoy hummingbirds. And if you want to maintain feeders, then there's a responsibility to, to have them clean and um, provide the type of nectar that is consistent with the hummingbirds energetic needs one cup of sugar to four cups of water if you look at a theater and you say oh that looks like really fresh i could drink that sugar water then your sugar water is probably okay if you see it cloudy and you just say, oh, no way, that's not uh, something that I could drink, well, then it's way past due to clean your feeders.
0: Yeah, yeah. Can you give us some examples of the the floral diversity you have planted there or your husband has planted there that help provide um, – real full nectar resources for your hummingbirds that are clearly also coming to your feeders. Because I, I like that differentiation, Susan, because we know that floral nectar is far more complex and um, full of you know trace nutrients that sugar water is never going to be full of. And so that floral resource of nectar and pollen um, is really important to include with a feeder.
1: One of our goals, because uh, our house, we're in the country, we're trying to develop it as a hummingbird research and restoration reserve. Our goal for our gardens is to identify native plants that provide nectar resources throughout the season. Now, there happens to be a number of genera of plants that are key for hummingbirds that we've planted. One of the fun plants is penstemon. Penstemon periae are just starting to bloom and they're one of the early penstemons to bloom in our part of the world. Then the next is penstemon Barbatus, and it's a dark red flower that then blooms just starts blooming just at the end of the penstemon periae. And then we have Pinceman pseudospectabilis that starts to bloom just at the time that the Barbados is starting to uh, decline. And so for Pinceman, that's probably our best group of uh, species in one genus that has a nice temporal uh, bloom time that keeps a Pinceman species blooming throughout most of the seasons that hummingbirds occur we're now working on or I should say my husband Lee Rogers is now working on beefing up our salvia collections. Yeah. One of the salvias is from Mexico. Uh Salvia elegans which is a beautiful long red tubular flower. But then we also have a variety of salvias. The focus is to try to develop flowering beds that have different species of salvias that will bloom from the time hummingbirds arrive to the time that they leave in a year. Other plants are Anisacanthus. Anisacanthus ferberi is a native plant around um, our area that is a key hummingbird nectar plant Acatillo, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is a key spring-blooming plant. Even the agaves, although their, their primary pollinator are bats, they produce copious amounts of nectar, and um, so hummingbirds use them in the mornings mm-hmm. uh, for uh, a strong nectar resource. Lobelia is another uh, genus that we have a couple of species planted, um, and since I live in the Southwest, it Marcy's book, Hummingbird Plants of the Southwest, give us a nice option of looking for more kinds of plants. Yeah.
0: One of the wonderful things about what you've just described is that Penstemons and salvias and lobelias have so many different species that are native to or well adapted to almost anywhere you want to live in the United States. And so um, right there, uh, you've given us a great example of big groups to work with across the flowering season. Is there anything else you would like to add, Susan, about your love of and hope for hummingbirds amongst us as we move
1: forward? Hummingbirds are unique in that every culture that lives with hummingbirds have a positive interaction with hummingbirds. And it seems to me that if we can maintain hummingbird diversity in this world, because we all love them, then we have a chance to maintain biodiversity and other species that are so critical for our functioning natural world. If we can just let one group of animals into our hearts, the others can follow. Thank you very much for being
0: a guest on the program today and for your great work,
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity.
0: Dr. Susan Weddington is a research scientist, program developer, and executive director of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network, a group charting the course of our many and beloved hummingbird species from Canada down to Mexico. Join us again next week as the conversations continue with the final in our five-part series about our gardens as important and sustaining habitats for the wildlife of our areas and we gardeners as important stewards of biodiversity. We'll be speaking with horticulturist Carol Bornstein, director of the Nature Gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, and Lila Higgins, senior manager of community science there. They'll bring us up to speed on what the Nature Gardens and the habitat they provide can teach us all. Cultivating Place is a listener supported co production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from the work and gardens of the Hummingbird Monitoring Network, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX. Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.